Hey Blockheads, this is Dungeon Master Chris. Battle Bards is back with another opportunity for you, the listeners of the Dungeon Master's Block. Battle Bards has given you, the DMB listeners, a special opportunity to collect some free audio. Take a listen to a little portion of one of the tracks available. audio is from their not yet released Dark Elf City album. If you like what you have heard, head over to BattleBards.com and use these promo codes when checking out. You can use Dark Elf 1, which is valid on offers of $10 to $25 packages. It will earn you one track from the Dark Elf City album. You can use Dark Elf 2, which is valid on any $50 or $100 BattleBards credit package. This earns you two tracks from the Dark Elf City album. And last but not least, maybe you heard it coming, but you can use Dark Elf 3 for offers valid of $150 to $300 packages, which earns you an entire four tracks off the Dark Elf City album. And when you check out using these codes, you're not only helping out Battle Bards, you're not only helping out the DMB, but you are also helping out yourself. So head on over to BattleBards.com now and consider helping yourself out. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we focus on the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all the people at your table. I'm one of your hosts, Dungeon Master Chris. And I am Dungeon Master Mitch. And this week we are joined by another fellow DM, Sean Merwin. We'll get to him in a little bit, but he is here to talk with us this week about conventions and how you can go about preparing, how you can go about playing, the benefits of being a part of a convention. And so we are excited to have him a part of this upcoming show. But specifically before, DMing at conventions. Yes, specifically DMing at conventions. That is very true. We are the DM's block after all. <laughs> so with that in mind, we are going to jump into some five-star reviews for this week. Our first five-star review comes from Zerl the Face Fister. So there you go. Uh, it's entitled great source information and inspiration love the show guys i've started incorporating so much of what you guys put out into my game my favorite episodes are the raw real monsters episodes nice i get very excited for those keep up the great work <laughs> thank you thank you so much zerl we zerl appreciate the face that. fister sounds like he could have been a monster from raw real monsters yes. back in the day <laughs> that's true that's true <laughs> so, thanks for that zerl Maybe the face he's just like a monster that has a fist for a face yeah right hmm. he's not the one that carries his eyeballs around he's just a fist <laughs> with some eyeballs in a mouth Fantastic. He opens up his hand and there's a face inside of it. I feel ah. like that's just a great new homebrew monster for an upcoming right. Raw Real Monsters another, episode. Yeah, there you go. There we go. So the next one comes from Dark Lament and it's entitled DM Jefferson D, five stars. Hey guys, been listening to you since the beginning and you definitely get a five star review from me. You give great advice and tips that can be used for any edition of D&D. 
Glad you dig 5e, but please be careful not to rag on 4e too much. Uh, th- it was the addition that got my wife into D&D as well as many others. And I can say us who, f- who played it have many fond memories. And we wouldn't have the awesomeness that is 5e without the growing pains of 4th. <laughs> Smiley face. Oh, Growing Pains was a great TV show. Oh, yeah, up. great. <laughs> I love great, Kirk yes. Cameron, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've gotten a lot a lot more friendly towards 4E, but, you know. Or it's just because we don't talk about it as much anymore. Yeah, yeah. Know. Well, that's okay. Let, let's just state this so that everybody hears. I'm really glad 4th Edition exists because if it wasn't for 4th Edition, there would be a lot less D&D players out that's, there today, and that would be a very sad thing. I don't want to play 4th edition, but <laughs> there it is, 4th edition. Thanks for all that you have done. And with that, we are going to head into <laughs> the meat Nothing from section. you, huh, Chris? <laughs> okay, nope. to the meat. <laughs> I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meat? Can't be that! Just a mouthful! No! <laughs> So this week for the meet, we are joined by a very special guest, Mr. Sean Merwin. Say hello, Sean. Hello, Sean. How's it going? Hey, there we go. That's that's a very typical response we get for when I say say hello, so and so. The oldest joke in the book. Yes. Very true. So Sean is the lead editor and developer for Encoded Designs. He's worked on and wrote numerous D and D projects from. Uh, adventures to source books, articles, and much, much more. He has written for and is very strongly passionate about organized play. He is also one of the co-hosts of Down with D&D. And so we are so excited to have yeah. uh, Mr. Sean here. And he is going to be talking to us about cons and playing from home and what's the differences and what do you need to know, what do you not need to know, and things like that. But before we get into that, we have a few questions that we've selected for Sean to answer. So, Sean, for those people out there who don't know who you are, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, well, I probably am like most gamers of my generation. I've been <laughs> playing D&D and other role-playing games since the 70s, although I, it really hurts me to say that. <laughs> so, you know, I started when I was about 10 and just fell in love with the whole process. As a kid, I loved games of any sort, and I loved stories, so... I can't think of a better conjunction of the two than role-playing yeah. games. And right. so, you know, since the very beginning, uh, as soon as I played my first game, I was like, this is what I want to do always, forever, uh, <laughs> in some way or another. But you know, as, as life progresses, you know, we lose these childish dreams, and so did I for a while. <laughs> but then around 2000, when the third edition of D&D came out, it just so happened that a lot of life things conjoined, and I was able to start freelancing. And so since 2000, I have been freelancing for various companies, most prominently Wizards of the Coast, but also Cobalt Press and Goodman Games and Kenzer and & Company and Pelgrane Press and Zombie Sky Press, and I could go on and on and on. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be a really good feeling. Oh, it is. It's great. <laughs> and I also have a, you know, a real job in the real world. So this is all just hobby stuff, but it's, you know, it's that dream I had as a kid, getting to live it has been a dream come true, basically. Yeah, which yeah, is crazy awesome. with all that. It's, you have a quite the extensive resume, and that's that's your side job. That's your hobby. Yeah, that's pretty you know, amazing. This is, what, this is what we do to put the kid through college in a few years. <laughs> there you go. That's a good way to look at it, yeah. Yes, that's what I'm trying. 
There we go. So tell us a little bit more about Encoded Design. Encoded Designs is a company that was formed up in Buffalo, New York. I live about an hour south of Buffalo. From some people I met through various podcasts or through writing projects or through organized play campaigns. And we all had kind of a different skill set. So Phil Vecchione is the man who started Encoded Designs. And he worked for or he's written a lot of books, I should say, for Engine Publishing, which has garnered several NE nominations and other Origins Awards and so on, all about kind of the process of running games and planning games and prepping games. And, and so he wanted to kind of branch out and start making games rather than just writing about how to run games. So he brought on board Chris Sneezak, who started basically in podcasting with the Misdirected Mark podcast, which branched out into various other podcasts, including Down with <laughs> d So we three, Phil, Chris, and I, were kind of the core of this, and we just wanted a place where we could kind of work on our own projects because we have all freelanced in different areas but never got a chance to sit down and write our own stuff. So we started, and then we thought, well, we could use probably another editor. So we brought on board Bob Everson, who was also an editor for Engine Publishing. And then we brought on John Arcadian, who worked for Engine on a few projects. But he is he's kind of a multi-purpose person. He can do writing. He can do editing. He can do art direction, uh, website design. So he was a great addition. And then we thought, well, we really need a kind of someone who can work in graphics. Because if you're going to publish, it's all about the look. So we brought on someone from Buffalo who came in through Chris in from another podcast named Tim Jones. And so that's us right now. We are we call ourselves like a hippie gaming commune <laughs> where we kind of we work on projects that we're not going to be working on for other larger companies, but they're kind of passion projects. So we put them together, put our skills together. So if, if it's one person's project, you know, we'll all chip in on it and then when it's our turn for our project to come to fruition, Everyone else will bring their talents to the table. <laughs> That's the encoded designs in a nutshell. And we've been around probably two years now, give or take. And our first project was just a little dungeon world adventure, just to see if we could all work together. And you know, <laughs> we, we did all our things and we worked on it relatively quickly and did the layout and did the editing and put it all up. And we threw it up on, uh, you know, drive through RPG just to say, hey, we can do this. And we did. And, nice. You know, it's not a flawless product, but we worked out some kinks and got our process down. And, you know, we've been rolling kind of ever since. That's awesome. That's very cool. Yeah, that's kind of how it works, though. Sometimes you, you don't exactly know what you're doing until you get into it. And then you figure out how things are actually supposed to work. So that's really cool. I've been looking through some of your products and uh, they're definitely worth going out and checking into. So well done on that. That's awesome. That's a great experience to have. <laughs> it is. It, it's a great experience. And you know, the more people you bring on, the more connections that they've always had with other companies. Like, you know, John Arcadian does website design for like Monty Cook Games and for Cobalt Press. So if there's ever a time we want to do like a Numenera cipher system kind of project, John has connections with Monty Cook Games. So, you know, all that gets the ball rolling and then gives you new opportunities. Like we hooked up with a, an artist who'd worked on some projects that Phil had done. You know, he put up sketches of characters, basically. And he's like, how can we make this into something cool that people will buy? So we created what we we're calling the character cash product c-a-c-h-e not cash as in money and so what we did was we take matt morrow who's the artist we take his sketches 
and we put with them a back a cool background story plus stat blocks for different games mostly like fate fate core uh dungeon world uh what's the other one uh but the, the savage worlds and now since the uh fifth edition D open gaming license came out we can do stats for D as well and so it's a patreon project that we're doing where the people that submit their money can not only get this stuff but can vote for what we work on next and can <laughs> vote for the stat blocks that we use so you can just take these you know every month we put up a new one with different stat blocks take them use them in your game very nice. And so, like we said before, you've also, your resume is quite extensive, but you've also written adventure modules and source books and so on for Dungeons and Dragons, for Wizards of the Coast. What has been, if you have a favorite, your favorite adventure module or source book, whatever book that you worked on for D&D? Wow, that's that's looking back at a long <laughs> list of things. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> I've literally had people come up to me and say, you know, I really loved blank that you worked on. And I'll say, yeah. no, I didn't. I didn't work on that. And they'll say, well, yes, you did. I'm like, no, no, I didn't. And then they'll pull out the book and show me. I'm like, and it says, <laughs> yeah, by golly, I did work on that. You've been just to give a little context. You've been working on D and D books since what third edition, yep. and now up until current fifth edition, right? That's correct. Yeah. Yep. So there's a list. <laughs> the sad part is the favorite is always the thing you're just starting on, mm-hmm. and your most sure. hated one is the one you're just finishing. You know, because you just don't want to look at it <laughs> sure, anymore. That makes sense. But if I look back, if you ask me tomorrow, I would have a different answer. But right now, <laughs> my favorite is probably The Halls of Undermountain. Okay. That was one of the last fourth edition books that Wizards published. Mm-hmm. And it was, as a kid, I played in Undermountain. I didn't DM mm-hmm. it, but I was a player for, for a DM that, that wanted to run games there. So, you know, all those memories came flooding back when I got the chance <laughs> to work on, on a new version. And it was one of the first projects where I did probably 90% of the work on the product. Uh, Matt Cernit was the editor and he contributed quite a bit. But in terms of just word count, it was mostly me. So that was, you know, a good feeling to know that that was coming out of my brain. Yeah. (laughs) Whether that's for good or bad, I don't know. But it it also, (laughs) it showed me a lot about the kind of business of role-playing games. Up to that point, I might get projects and, you know, I just get like a brief outline of what I'm supposed to be working on. And then I would do that and I'd hand it in and I'd never see anything else about that project until it was published. And this was the first project where I really got a good behind the scenes look at how RPG companies work and kind of the business side of things. Because the finished product is a nice small hardcover book, but the original plan was to make it a box set with maps and minis and trap cards and all these cool extras. And so when the outline was presented, you don't realize it if you're just sitting down and playing, but if you're actually designing it, how much that limits what you can put into the adventure. For example, I couldn't use more than one large monster hmm. because of the minis and then the little discs, like the tokens that you, they were yeah. going to be in there. Yeah. So every monster in the adventure was supposed to have a corresponding token. But because of the way they're cut, we could only have one large. Hmm. So that's why if you look through the adventure, you're only going to see one, I think, large creature. That's funny. I've never thought of that before in aspect of creating adventure modules. Like I've thought of, of course, it's this adventure is specifically made for this to this level. So right. you're not going to have certain creatures in. But I didn't even 
think about the fact that, you know, you have the tokens in there and, and so on and so forth, and that has to factor in as well. Right. So there's all these things that I never really thought about. I mean, there were limitations, of course. There's always limitations on design. But, you know, to the extent of we're making decisions about what the actual adventure is based on these kind of business considerations. And so hmm. it, that gave me a really good you know, feel for the business and how hard it is, you know, to juggle all of these things as a project manager. But, you know, just in terms of the writing, it was just cool to sit down and go back through the old ruins of Undermountain box set from, you know, early, early second edition days and all of the cool stuff that Ed Greenwood put into that and then bringing it into, you know, into the fourth edition world and making it a fun adventure to play for various types of players and what DMs wanted to get out of it. And it was also interesting because... At that time, 4th edition was kind of wrapping up and they were already thinking about 5th edition or at that point they were calling it D&D Next. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to get away from the 4th edition trope of it's going to be just this set encounter and it's going to be perfectly balanced with you know the CR of the monster versus the level of the character and everything has to fit a certain way. They kind of wanted to get back to a 1st edition kind of feel where you might go into a room as eighth level characters with just one orc and make that a cool encounter or you know being first level characters and facing something that's very very strong and having the players need to run away so it was cool to kind of get back into that mindset during writing of that adventure i'm sure it was also really cool like i can't imagine like being able to go back in time and tell 10 year old sean like hey you're playing in undermountain you're going to be working on this one day. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, that uh, moment of disbelief would definitely be there. My mind has been blown so many times <laughs> by exactly that those sorts of things. It's like, wow, you know, I remember as a kid doing this or, or doing that. Mm -hmm. And it's often terrifying. It really is terrifying because, you know, especially in the Forgotten Realms where you have a lot of fans who have very strong opinions about how things should or should not work. And so, you know, getting dirty in that sandbox is it's a terrifying experience and you kind of just have to at some point let it go or it'll you know drive you nuts and you just mm -hmm. have to say okay just do the best that you can do for the you know the players that you know from around the world who might enjoy this <laughs> well and usually the people that are the loudest about a product at times can be the people that didn't like what you did with it but i'm sure on the flip side of that there's hundreds and thousands of people that have loved the work that was put in on any one sort of module that you've done yeah so it's yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying when yeah, sometimes you just gotta let that kind of thing go. That makes a lot of sense. Yep. And never read Amazon reviews. That's <laughs> <laughs> I was when you were talking about Halls of the Undermountain, I went and looked at it and I was like, Wow, some of these people are really mean, but I've heard that from authors before. They don't read Amazon reviews yeah. for that exact purpose. Yeah, you really need to get into the mindset of, you know, take in feedback, just eliminate the dross, eliminate what's not useful to you and then take in the things that make sense. And that yeah, goes for right. both praise and criticism because praise is right. wonderful, but praise generally doesn't help you become a better anything yeah. unless it's specific points of, I liked specifically this. But yeah, you, when you get Amazon reviews, one star and you're like, oh, okay, why? Oh, the packaging was terrible when I, when it was sent. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. okay, well, I'll get right on that then. So, yeah, so you're not judging the product, you're judging the packaging, the packaging. not what's inside. Hmm. 
All right. <laughs> so you've worked on a ton of things before. Is there anything specific that you're currently working on now? I am working on so many things. I am busier <laughs> than a kindergarten teacher after Halloween. I'll tell you, it's it's a. Uh, there was a Kickstarter from Zombie Sky Press for a product called the Fairy Ring, which you know looks at the world of fairy in fifth edition D and D terms. And so I'm trying to finish up some work that I'm doing on that. I have three Wizards of the Coast projects that I'm working on, which unfortunately I can't talk about right now. But I will say that sense. there are some very cool things coming down the line. And if you are a convention goer, I strongly urge you to consider going to Origins in Columbus, Ohio in June. Because there's going to be some excellent stuff being uh, played and released there. Excellent. Yeah. Well, so if you're in the Columbus, Ohio area, consider going. Or even further away, I'll tell consider you what, going. Anywhere, it's going to be great stuff. If, if you're a D&D player and you save your money to go to Gen Con, Gen Con's still going to be a great show. But I would probably take Origins over Gen Con this year for D&D players. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I'm also editing, for Encoded, I'm editing a book we're calling Project Ruben, because apparently all our projects are named after sandwiches until we get a title. <laughs> and that's going to be that's a awesome. book about, if you're a DM and you're used to kind of the traditional method of you prep what you're going to be running and you you know lay out all your encounters and you have a nice little plot that you're going to follow, <laughs> how to change the way you DM into a more improvisational DM. <laughs> and so that's in the stages that's being written and edited right now. I don't know when it will be released, but it's I think it's going to be pretty cool for, you know, for a generation of DMs who might be used to running D&D a certain way from just kind of a script. And the last thing I'm working on is also for Encoded Designs. We released an adventure set in the Moonshay Isles of the Forgotten Realms. It's called Life and Moon. And we're working on some follow-up material, both a follow-up adventure and some player resources that you can use if you run this uh, kind of mini campaign. <laughs> so other than that, I'm completely free. <laughs> <laughs> other than so that, you're, you're kicking not back <laughs> and relaxing on a recliner. And yeah. <laughs> well, luckily, my daughter and my wife are both players. So sometimes we will spend the night sitting down, draw maps or, you know. Nice. Or play testing something or, hey, what do you think would be good in this encounter kind of thing. So we kind of turn it into a family thing when we can. That's awesome. Yeah. So you've told us a lot about your time working on uh, role-playing games, but I'm assuming the answer is D&D, but you can give us more specifics. How did you first get started playing role-playing games? I think my story is probably very similar to a lot of people. I was like I said, about 10 years old, about fifth grade, I think. And my best friend invited me over to his house during kind of a winter break. So we went and we were playing the old Atari 2600 game Adventure, where you're the little dot on the screen and you go around and you have to get the sword, which is just kind of an arrow, and then you kill the dragon that comes after you. It's like the worst game ever. My daughter looked at it and said, I can't believe you <laughs> used to play this. But, you know, so we're doing that because we're geeky kids. And my uh, best friend's brother comes up from the cellar and says hey you too we need you downstairs and this has to be something major because otherwise you know these cool older kids wouldn't even talk to us younger kids right and basically they were playing white plume mountain the old ad and d adventure <laughs> and i love white plume yeah. Mountain. it's fantastic and some of their friends who were supposed to come didn't show up so they needed a couple more players and that was how i got started and you know like you said white plume mountain is awesome it's so weird and wacky and and just mm -hmm. so cool from the very first riddle that you have to answer as you enter to all of the strange creatures that you meet. And I was hooked right then and there. And this was the first AD&D adventure that they played because they had been playing from the basic set. 
And so they were playing, switching over to AD&D. So they had all this basic set material that they didn't want anymore. They're like, this stuff's crap now. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, do you mind if I take that? And so I <laughs> grabbed that and took it home and just started reading and absorbing it all. And slowly we built up you know, a group that we played with through junior high and high school and then even a little through college. So, but you know, that start was that 10 year old kid in, in his friend's basement with the older kids saying, why can I climb walls or how can I do this? And how can I do that? And they're just, just roll the 20 sider and be quiet. <laughs> but, you know, but the story that you can create is just so, so strong for some people that it's hard not to want to play. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's many, many people's story that you can't help, but just be sucked in because there's such great story that you can potentially be a part of. I think that's a way that many people got involved in D&D for the first time. And so we have one last question. It's a surprise question. So you have no idea what it is coming in to this point in time in the podcast. I'm, and so terrified. my question is, if, if you were <laughs> transported for some reason, a portal opened up or for whatever reason, you were transported into the Forgotten Realms and you had a choice to be either a Bullywog or a Kobold for the rest <laughs> of your life. What would you choose oh, to be? Oh, there is no... A, a kobold all the way. Really? Oh, <laughs> kobolds are the best monster ever. If I could write an adventure and just use... <laughs> I would love to write like a, a, an adventure for 20th level characters that only use kobolds. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and just just annihilate them because kobolds uh. are that awesome. There was, <laughs> a, there was awesome. a box set called, was it Dragon Mountain? I think like back in the second edition I think days. so, yeah. And it was, that was basically what it was. It was this mountain that this dragon ruled... But everything in it was basically cobalts. And that was my perfect adventure back in the day. Nice. <laughs> All right. Cobalts are definitely fun. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so let's start getting into the meat and talking about, Sean, you have a real passion for con games and running con games. And this is something that me and Chris have done a little of, but not too much. And so we wanted to have you on the show today to talk about con games. And for any of our listeners who either have run con games or who haven't and maybe are thinking about it or even who haven't even thought about it we wanted to put that on their radar and talk a little bit about what goes into running a game at a con what to expect all that kind of stuff so to start off what would you say sean the differences in running a game at a con and a game at home with a group of your friends well the, the first thing i want to do is i want to differentiate between kind of different types of con games yeah because the con games that i'm most used to running are through organized play campaigns so in that sense, you are stepping in as a DM, but you are using a published adventure and you are working within kind of a setting that is created by both you and every other DM that runs within that campaign. Mm -hmm. You can go to a con and just run a game like you would run a home game, you know, something that you bring yourself that you've created and you get to set all the variables. But for this conversation, I, I want to just talk about kind of that organized play where you are a DM, but there is a whole structure around you. In these cases, when you go and run a con game as opposed to a home game, there are many differences. 
The first and probably the most important is when you run a home game, you're probably running for a group of friends, if not close friends, at least acquaintances who you yeah. are comfortable enough to be around to invite them into your house or you to go to their <laughs> house or you know to be in close proximity for a long period of time. When you run at a convention, you're usually running games for strangers. And that can be a big hurdle for some people. And I know it was a big hurdle for me when I first started you know, getting into organized play campaigns and, and how am I going to do and what are the people going to be like? And I have to say that 95% of the people are just like you. They're just happy not to be at work or at school. They're just happy to be creating a story and sitting around a table and laughing and making bad jokes and you know, telling a story as a group. So that whole you know, stranger aversion really isn't a problem for most people. Mm -hmm. In fact, I can honestly say that I wouldn't be here talking to you today if I didn't get over that aversion and start meeting new and different types of people and new and different mm -hmm. types of players that gave me a window into the world of gaming that I would have never seen if I had just kind of stayed in my basement. Mm -hmm. Because strangers bring so much new information, so much new knowledge, so much new attitude toward how a game can be fun or cannot be fun that without taking all of that information in I would never have gotten you know the ideas that have finally led me to where I am so that's one of the big differences the whole published adventure versus a homebrew adventure could be another con game difference between a home game and a con mm -hmm. game so you have to kind of get used to running from a script as opposed to just creating things on your own which again it's always great to create things on your own but to set, kind of see someone else's work and then be the arbiter of that work and with the players you know, you're the kind of referee, you're the judge, you're the person that's taking someone else's work and making it work for this particular group of people. And you learn so much about game design and adventure design from doing that, that it's an invaluable experience. Yeah, because that can carry over into helping you prepare even your own homebrew games with ideas that you've had come up at those games and maybe how people word things you can learn from that and, you know, what type of monsters and how did they, you know, suggest that these monsters should be used can, yeah, like you said, be very, very invaluable for bringing it home to to a home game from the con games that you're playing and or running. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like an internship, you know, for sure. a game company because, you know, you're sitting down and you're doing that on the ground, you know, hands in the mud work of extrapolating what the paper says versus what actually happens, uh, you know, at the table. So things like box text, you know, when you read the worst box text ever, you start to realize that, oh my gosh, I think I can now probably write better box text because of this. You know, just <laughs> something as simple as that is is a valuable lesson. But you know, even dealing with players, like you said, you know, you might have a player at the table who is always talking and always wanting to be the person to do something. And you quickly learn how to deal with those people, not in a violent or a derogatory way, but you, you kind of learn to manipulate the way you talk and who you talk to and how you move from player to player. It's almost like teaching. You know, when you teach, they teach you how to keep eye contact with different people and, and make sure you're getting answers from different students. You know, it's the same way running a game. And so if you see that type of player at a convention and you learn to deal with them, then you can say, oh my gosh, that's just like Bill in my home game. And Bill's always being disruptive, and, and now I know how to deal with Bill, or vice versa. You know, maybe you deal with Bill at your home game, and that makes you very suited to running a game at a convention where you might come up against that kind of player. 
And the last difference that comes to mind immediately is when you run at a convention, you're usually on a time schedule. Usually there's a slot that might be three out, two hours or three hours or four hours or five hours even. And you have to fit a certain amount of content within that time slot. And you really learn how to pace a game well when you are forced to do that. And sometimes it takes several iterations of running it to get the timing down. But you kind of grow a clock in your mind where you know that, okay, I have six encounters in this adventure. I have three hours, so half hour each encounter, but one's a long combat, so I have to shorten this one that's just more role-playing or vice versa because I don't want to run late, but I don't want to end too early because then people might be upset that they you know spent six bucks on a ticket for this event and I finished it in half the time it was supposed to. So you, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, so you really learn that sort of pacing when you run a timed event. Depending on the event and the convention you're running at, you might be running a game that only lasts an hour, or you might run an event that goes eight hours. So, you know, you really get the breadth of experience in dealing with those different kinds of situations. I know for me and Chris, when we went to a catacon and we ran our game together, that was the, I think, Chris, I can say that was our biggest worry was the time restriction. Because having not done a con game before, we were really afraid because we were like, oh, well, they're home games. When we write out what we want to do for the night or for the next couple of weeks and we only hit one or two plot points because the players decide they want to really get into this one thing that we didn't expect or they go off in a whole different direction. We love it because it's like, oh, I'm totally prepped for the next session or the next three sessions or whatever. But in a game where you have a strict time limit, I know we went in like, Very, very much so. That was our biggest fear was the time constraints, especially since we were running a game together with two separate groups that were going to come together and do battle at the end. So we had to both kind of finish (laughs) at the same time. time. (laughs) We had time constraints for the slot we were in and time constraints that we finished right around the same time so we could have the final thing without making (laughs) our players wait a long time. Luckily, it completely worked out better than we could have ever expected. But yeah, that was definitely, I think, our biggest (laughs) was working on our nerves the most when we were getting set up for that game. Yeah, that's I mean, that's a tough constraint, too. You know, when when you have to kind of you don't know what the other and luckily you Mm -hmm. two have worked together, I'm sure, you know, before and I'm sure you planned it out very well. But, you know, when you're relying on someone else's timing as well as your own, it's a huge barrier to be able to overcome. So I guess there's a question that a lot of people who maybe run homebrew campaigns and have never done a convention type game before, there's probably some questions that they want answered about, you know, when am I ready to DM a con game? And so I guess the first question that goes into that is, Sean, do you think people need to know all the rules before they go into a convention game for the first time? Absolutely not. I don't even come close to knowing all the rules, <laughs> and I'm doing the writing for some of this stuff. And you write for them, yeah. Exactly. No, I think there is a just a basic set of knowledge that you need to have, and the first rule is you don't need to know the rule, but you need to know where to find the rule. Sure. Because then you can just say, oh, you know what, that swimming rule, I always have trouble with that swimming rule. Hey, uh, player to my right, could you look up the swimming rule for me real quick? It's, yeah. you know, it's in the middle part of the player's handbook and again we've talked about player types give that task to the player who's fidgety right and then they have (laughs) something to do and you get your question answered so sometimes actually not knowing an answer i will admit that there have times when i've known the answer but i faked that i 
didn't know because I wanted the players <laughs> to kind of relax a little bit because they were all on edge and, you know, all worried about each and every rule. And I'd be like, yeah, you know, I have no idea. How does Magic Missile work again? Uh, could you look that up for me? <laughs> I know it's 3D4 plus 4 and, and uh, at first level. And, and the range is, you know, this and that. But show them that you're human. Everyone relaxes and uh, everyone has a good time. I guess that's a good point I had never thought of before is the players are almost on edge about not knowing all the rules as you are as the DM because they might not want to be seen as the person who doesn't know, you know. So that's interesting. I had never thought about that before. That's that's a that's a good point. Yeah, a lot of times, you know, the players are just as nervous as the DM, especially if all the players don't know each other. So they're all sitting down now. Everyone's trying to get a feel for who is this and who is that and what's my character going to be like and what am I going to do. And so you can just go in and if you set a relaxed tone, I think most people kind of will then follow your lead as the leader of the table when you dm so you know you should know the basics you should know that everything is a d20 roll you're going to add some modifiers and you're going to try to hit a target number you know if you have played DD for even more than a few sessions then you're ready to dm that was going to be my next question how familiar with dming should one be before they decide to go and dm for a con game the best thing to do and what I did was I would go to a convention and I would play a few games and watch how the DM handled things. And that gave me you know, a good view of what works and what doesn't and how to run the game you know, in the smoothest way possible to get myself started. And it didn't take long because I DM since I was, you know, about 12 years old. So I had kind of the general things down, you know, roll initiative, keep initiative, you know, keep an eye on time, monsters, this, that. Like I said, if you've played more than just a few sessions, you, you know the deal. And everyone kind of runs their table differently, especially with things like tracking initiative or using maps and minis versus just doing a theater of the mind kind of game so just you know the best thing to do is to try and then you go from there and if you knock it out of the park on your first attempt great keep right on going and if things don't go quite right learn from what you did maybe ask some other dms around you hey this happened during the game and the player seemed a little thrown off how would you have handled that and before you know it you know dms are they want to, you know, players want to tell you about their characters. DMs want to tell you about how they ran their table. So <laughs> there is no lack of, you know, information out there to help you. <laughs> so for DMs who want to start and take on a con game and do a, a game at a con, what is it that they should expect from their first con game what do they need to know for their first con game maybe let's start with the expectations and what could be let's look at the best and worst kind of situation that could come out of it that you should expect let's talk about the kind of the best situation you could get yourself into. let's do it and i'm going to refer to a an organization called bald man games Bald Man Games is a company that is responsible for running D&D, official, you know, Wizards of the Coast sponsored organized play events at conventions like Gen Con and Origins and Winter Fantasy and at PAX Prime and PAX East. So this is a group that's been around for years and years, and they've kind of got it down to a science. So say you want to go to Gen Con and you want to DM. What you would do is you would start by going, Bald Man Games will put out a, uh, a request for volunteers and DMs, which will probably be rebroadcast by Wizards of the Coast. So you go to a website and you'll put in your information and say, hey, I'd love to volunteer at Gen Con. 
So what you would do is you'd be put into like a forum or a mailing list where you would talk to other DMs and other volunteers and you would get the lay of the land about what's expected of you. And there would be a lot of communication up front. I'm running this event. I'm going to run this event four times. You know, when do I get the adventure that I'm running? Where do I have to be when, et cetera, et cetera. And if it's going well, all of that stuff will be handled long before the convention gets here. So you would get your schedule. You would know that you need to be in this area at this time and look for the people holding the clipboards because they'll tell you what table to go to. Then you would get the adventure and you could read it over and you could ask questions on this forum or this mailing list where not only other DMs who are running it, but probably even the people who wrote it would be able to answer those questions for you. So all of that would be taken care of long before. And then when you get to Gen Con time, you would know, okay, I need to show up at 6 p.m. in this room on Wednesday night to have our volunteer meeting. And there you would maybe you know, be given the materials you need to run, given a cool T-shirt for being a volunteer, any other freebies that DMs get. You'd be handed those, and then the meeting would go on, and you know there might be announcements about, if you're new, remember to always be done 15 minutes before the end of the slot, yada, 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 all that stuff. And then all along the way, everything is very structured, so you n- never have too many questions, and if you do have a question, that question's answered immediately. Hmm. So that's kind of the best-case scenario. And you know when you DM for a group like Bald Man Games... There'll be people that come around during the game to to help you if you have questions, hand you a bottle of water if you're getting thirsty. Nice. Yeah. Say you're running an Adventures League adventure, one of the you know Wizards of the Coast organized play adventures. The administrators for that campaign will be around as well, wearing a certain kind of shirt so you can see who they are. And if you have a question about, well, this character has this item, and you know according to the campaign rules they shouldn't. What do I do? You can just point over to them and say, hey, could you come here? And they'd answer that, take care of it for you. So that's kind of the best case scenario. You know, the worst case scenario would be just the opposite of that. You volunteer at, at some, say, some local con and you're, you, know, you email the person who it says on their website and they say, sure, show up and we'll get you a table. And you kind of don't know what you're supposed to do or how long the time slot is. And there's a lack of communication. And you can still make those kind of conventions work. And I still run different games at small conventions. But, you know, the more structure you have around you to answer questions, usually the better it is. So I think another really, really important question, and this I think, like I said, Chris and me have done a con game before and it it worked out well, but I think one of the things that was the most daunting was not knowing exactly how to prepare. We've got preparing for our home games down pat. We know how to do that now. But preparing for a con game, we didn't know it was a whole different animal. So what would be the steps or the advice you would give for those who want to DM a con game? What would be their way to prepare? Okay, in terms of organized play, what you will want to make sure you do is if there are any special rules for that particular campaign, just be aware of them. Again, you don't need to memorize them. Just if there's, you know, a 10-page document on these are the specific rules for the Adventures League, just have that handy. If you get a pre-published adventure that you're going to be running, make sure you read it over and ask any questions. Don't make any assumptions about the space that you're going to be in when you run a con game. If you're in a large hall, say, your voice 
is going to probably crack as you try to talk over, you know, 50 <laughs> other people around you talking. So, you know, have throat lozenges or water. The other thing you need to be aware of is a lot of people love using their devices, their tablets, laptops to run games from. You may not have access to a plug an outlet. Mm -hmm. And even if you do, you might not be able to use it because of fire hazard laws. So try to have a hard copy of anything you're going to be running or needing rather than just all electronic device. These are all good so far because everything you're going through, I'm shaking my head and I'm just like, yep, I remember Chris and me going through that. I remember when we got done with the con game, getting in the car to drive back home and both of us having lost our voice and just be like, that was so fun. <laughs> I want to do I that again. <laughs> yeah, I remember right. uh, having to frantically be like, oh, I got to make sure my laptop is charged because if we're at that table, it's not going to reach a plug and all that kind of stuff. It's definitely all this stuff is good so far yeah and you know different conventions you go to are all going to be set up in a different way mm -hmm. you know, some small local ones at say a college you might be in a room all by yourself with a nice chalkboard behind you and a huge you know lecture table or you know, a huge conference table in front of you and in some cases you might be eight players at you know, a table the size of a card table and you all <laughs> have to to work from that so you know don't make any assumptions and, and try to kind of think ahead and if you can get answers from other people that have run games at the convention you're running at talk with them and ask to see if you have access to outlets or if there are issues with noise or you know different things like that but you know it's mostly just about communication like everything in life if you talk with people ahead of time there are hundreds of millions of people in the world who probably have an answer to your question or can give you a hint. You just have to kind of reach out and admit that you need the help and then the help will come. Do you think that, speaking of time limits again, do you think it's also a good idea to, if you are able to, maybe run through the game that you're going to run with if you have a home group, a group of friends, to run through it and time yourself and see how things go? And I mean, even beyond time limits, to just kind of make sure you know the rules and even ask your friends, hey, if you're confused about something, ask me so that I can see if I'm prepared. Oh, absolutely. There's no substitute for being able to run an adventure before you run an adventure. I guess that makes no. sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also for something like Gen Con, like I just mentioned, the DMs who are running an adventure will often get a chance to play the adventure before hmm. they run it. Now they have to obviously read it and be prepared. Yeah. But, you know, to sit down and even though you've read it, to play in the adventure with an experienced DM and then you can sit and talk about it. Oh, you know, this part mm -hmm. might be tricky because during the combat, people are going to be swimming. So make sure you know the swim rules, you know, and you can kind of hammer on those corner cases or find those snags in the adventure that you can iron out more easily at the table if you've if you've experienced it. Yeah. So, Sean, we, as we talk more and more about DMing a convention, I am just more and more convinced that there is a lot of benefits that go into DMing for a convention that you just you won't get to experience with doing a home brew campaign setting and so I guess one of those things that I want to touch on a little bit is connections like in your experience of DMing at a convention how great of a benefit is coming up with connections with people at your table or with people of different companies and things like that what is the benefit to DMAI convention when it comes to connections oh I mean huge connections are huge I I remember before I was seriously writing for Wizards, I was kind of doing small things here and there for their organized play campaign. But I was DMing 
and I it was an Eberron game. I still remember that. And I went to the marshal, the person who matches the DM with the table, and the marshal said, okay, you go to table 13. You'll be running, you know, for five players. So I go over, and I sit down, and I pull out my adventure and get my dice out and setting things up, and I look over, and there's Chris Perkins sitting at the table as a player. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no big deal. No, no, no big deal. No, I'm, I'm not sure I want to be that DM. <laughs> that's the first thing I thought. The first thing I thought is, oh, this is the worst thing ever. Um, but, you know... It just, he's a guy. He's a player. Yeah. We, we all yep. have fun. I've run games for Mike Merles. I've played nice. games with Mike Merles, uh, other awesome. people at Wizards, and that's great. But I've also run games for probably 30,000 other people. And yeah. each one of those people, in some way, has taught me a little bit, whether it be a cautionary tale or, <laughs> you know, a grand winning moment. Yeah. about games. So there's no limit to the connections that you can make. You know, especially if you want to get involved in the industry and the only way to start is by doing. And by doing I mean playing and DMing and getting involved in playtesting and getting involved with, you know, larger events and seeing how these events work. There's no end to how much you can learn and I'm still learning from that process. I think a huge benefit too, a huge connection that people can make is as we get more and more into, you know, online role playing becoming a thing with these virtual tabletops and stuff. I think just making connections with players at conventions who might be going to a convention for the specific purpose of, I don't have a group to play with. This is my chance to play with somebody. You might be able to make a connection yeah. with other people who are looking to become a part of a group who wants to play more, who can only play, you know, online with other people because they don't have a group around them. And so that, I think that's a huge connection, too, for DMs who are looking for groups or for players that are looking for groups. I, I think if you're looking to get into the industry, that's amazing and that's great. But I think one thing, too, is you just meet people that you could potentially play, you know, a game with online for the rest of your life. And that would be <laughs> invaluable connection that you made at a convention i think that's another another great idea too conventions come for the games stay for the friendships <laughs> no that's <laughs> there we go yeah, but you know that is absolutely true for the local cons especially you meet people who are interested in the same hobby as you you know that's social networking right there at its core and like you said for the larger conventions even if you aren't local to those people the online gaming is so robust right now that it's definitely a thing. You know, I've met people who the first slot of a convention, I'll be DMing and they'll all sit down and they don't know each other. And by the end of the game, they're like, oh, are you playing this adventure in the next slot? Because we'd love to play with you. <laughs> or we want you, we want to play with you for the rest of the convention. You know, the players saying that to each other because they've connected already and now they've become friends just like that. Yeah. Do you think that if you are someone who is trying to create your own adventure, do you think a con game is a good place to do that? And if so, is there maybe a specific way you should go about running a game that's specifically done to try and play test your adventure? Oh, absolutely. I've done this so many times I couldn't even begin to count. I've done it in several ways, actually. I've taken an adventure that was mostly done, play tested it just to, you know, kind of a smoke test to see does everything that I envision work. Are the players able to follow the plot, not in terms of they must do this, but 
understand what's going on, to understand the text that I'm using to convey the idea. Is their brain accepting that and is the output correct? But I've also done it where, okay, I need to write an adventure. I've got a starting point, Mm -hmm. but I just don't know where to go from here. So let's just start, see where the players take me, and then I'm going to go back and I'm going to write the adventure based on where they go. And I did that for Halls of Undermountain for a little bit using my home group. I had the map because if one thing that Forgotten Realms has, it's a lot of pre-made maps. So, you know, (laughs) Undermountain had the first three levels done. So I'm like, okay, I need to work within these maps. Let me use this section. I'll start with this problem and see where the players go. And so part of the design of that adventure is simply based on my home group and what they thought would be cool by saying oh man we're gonna go this way and i bet we find blank okay that's what they're gonna find (laughs) so i just kind of let them you know write it for me yeah so yeah absolutely improvisation at its finest exactly exactly so you know absolutely play test with strangers if you can because while your home group is good you kind of get into a pattern with your home group There, there are some assumptions that are made with a home group maybe some rules that everyone misunderstands the same way so when you put down in front of a group of strangers and you say okay and then the monster does this you'll get a player going wait a second i didn't think that monster could do that and you're like whoa let me check oh you're right the breath weapon is only whatever wide rather than 30 feet so or it does have a recharge and you can't do it every single round right exactly because you know yeah that because that would be wrong (laughs) <laughs> machine gun dragons those would be very very interesting <laughs> every round breath weapon i think you need to be open to criticism from a group of friends or a group of strangers in different contexts both may be able to give you more truth than the other one but with strangers who don't know you and don't know oh man this guy's a great dm we dm with him every week they're going to obviously their view of you as a dm is going to be run from that game and so you need to be open to criticism but like you said earlier on sean like take the criticism and and learn from it and grow from it and pick out the stuff good and bad that is something that is actually going to help you and the rest of the stuff just move on <laughs> yeah and you know what's you know what's really cool to do if you get an opportunity is if you write something and you want to see a table play it mm-hmm. give it to a friend to run and yeah. then play in the game but don't tell anyone that you wrote the adventure yep. because that's a good idea you get unfiltered feedback again thicken up your skin sometimes but you know for the most part then you can actually sit back and you're not trying to run the game and you're not caught up with all the fidgety dice rolling and keeping of initiative and looking flipping through books you can kind of sit back and look at the reaction to players the looks on their faces when things happen are they smiling or are they frowning you know that's yeah as important a point to look at as a long questionnaire with several multiple choice answers you know that's valuable information you need to know as well as the DM and see if they can understand everything that you've written and that it makes it clear yeah, and whatnot. Absolutely. You know, and there's one more benefit for DMing a con game that often gets overlooked, and that's actual real world valuable rewards. <laughs> if you run four games at Gen Con for Bald Man Games, you get your badge for free. Nice. That's it's almost $100 now. Yeah. So a free badge. If you run eight games, eight four-hour games, you get a, a bed downtown. Now, if you know anything about signing up for Gen Con, right now if you try to get a room for Gen Con, you're in Dubuque, Iowa. You know. Good yeah. luck. Yeah. But run eight games, which is about half the con, and you get a free bed downtown. And 
you have fun running games and then in your free time you can go do the dealer's hall or you know whatever else you're going to do and a lot of times there might be like free books and and other swag given away to dms as well so that's above and beyond all of the other connections and you know experience and stuff it's kind of dollars and cents benefits yeah and if you are listening to this podcast hopefully you like dming so you're getting to do something that you like and <laughs> you're walking away with free cons or books or what have you whatever it is you might get that stuff on top of it as well sure something i do for free anyway but i i don't want to say that too loud because <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> right right so, Sean, if people are looking to sign up for any specific conventions or are looking to, you know, how do I how do I do this type of thing? Like, what's a good place that people could start for something like going to a convention? The best way to start for just conventions in general is if you have local cons near you, go to their website and find mm -hmm. out who's in charge of the RPG section. If they are offering organized play events like the D&D Adventures League or Pathfinder Society or Shadowrun Missions or any of the RPG organized play campaigns and you're interested in that section, go to the person that's in charge of that and say, hey, I'm interested in volunteering. Do you need DMs? If you're talking about the larger conventions, what you can do right now is go to baldmangames.com and you can sign up for a newsletter. And when they put out their call for volunteers, they'll send it out in a newsletter form. It'll give you all the directions you need to go to a website, fill in your information, you know, say how many games you want to run, when you're going to be there, etc., what you want your rewards to be, and everything will be handled then, you know, via mailing lists and forums and it's a step-by-step -step process. And like we've been talking about, I can't think of a better um, you know, a more fun experience I've had over the last 15 years than running hmm. games at conventions like Gen Con. Yeah. Awesome. Hey, Sean, thank you so much for joining us today and, and talking yeah, about running games at cons and giving advice. This is something that I'm sure a lot of our listeners who haven't done a con game, hopefully this sparks something in them that they now feel perhaps more prepared to go and sign up and try this out and want to do that. And for those listeners who already do this, hopefully they were able to glean some wisdom from this episode as well. If our listeners would like to get in touch touch with you, ask you questions about running con games, or just maybe they want to ask you questions about a book that you've forgotten that you've written. Uh, <laughs> where can they reach you at to do that? The best place to reach me is on Twitter. It's at Sean Merwin, S-H-A-W-N-M-E-R-W-I-N. And, you know, either just hit me up, ask me, or private message me, and, and I'll see what I can do. And I wanted to point uh, to one more website about information about running con yeah. games. There is a group called the Herald's Guild of DMs, and it's sponsored by Baldman Games, but it has videos and articles about different aspects of DMing. And so if you go to heraldsguild.com, right now there are several articles and four videos about different aspects of running games. Usually it's focused on convention games, but it's you know, valuable for any kind of DMs. So feel free to go to that site, see the content that's up there, and we'll be continuing to update that site with more information 
as time passes. Awesome. So definitely go and check that out. And beyond that, go follow Sean on Twitter. Go check out Encoded Designs. Go listen to his podcast. Go read his books. There's a lot of Sean Merwin out there for you to check out. And you should Some definitely do that. he might not even know Some exists. that yeah. he has no idea that he's even worked on. But he has because <laughs> his name is on it. So, Sean, thank you once again for joining us on today's show. We hope that you can come back sometime in the future and talk about something else with us. Always a pleasure, gentlemen. Always a pleasure. Thanks a lot. They've been asking for their mail on a daily basis. It's all they're talking about up there. That right there is the mail. Now let's talk about the mail. Can we talk about the mail, please, Mac? I'm dying to talk about the mail for you all day, okay? So welcome back to another segment of our Mailbag of Holding, the place where we share stories, ideas, and questions from you, the listener. Chris, we have an email today that we want to answer and who is this email from this email is from cooper and it's funny because he loves the food mage he wrote ps food mage at <laughs> yes. the very end if you want to know how to break into the deep parts of our heart just say food mage food mage <laughs> or anything from our top Long tens and we will, yeah, we will love you forever um, so he has a question about world building, but not just individual world building, but building a world together with another fellow DM. And this may be something that a lot of you are interested in. It may be something that you've thought about doing in the past. But so he writes in and he asks, curious, what are your thoughts on that type of co-world building if you've tried it? It allows for very real misinterpretations of world events. But seeing as I play in his campaigns and he and mine, not giving away the good stuff can be t quite tough. So Mitch, what are your thoughts when you hear about co-building a world? Is there any advice that you would give to people? I know we've never tried that. I know it's happening on our forums quite often. Mm -hmm. Which is awesome. Which is awesome. But what are your thoughts and any advice that you would give to Cooper about building a world cooperatively with another DM? So I have not done a lot of this. The most that I have done with this is I created my world of Atos. And back in my college days, when I first began it, I remember a couple of other players wanted a DM and I said, hey, why don't you here's a part of my map that I have not fleshed out. Why don't you do this? So uh, one of our friends, Jason, he took a Lendriel and he kind of fleshed it out and uh, he made it into what he wanted to make it. And another part of the world, our friends Flawful Jared and Hashtag Magic Mark took Dread Coast Isle in my world and made it into a place where all the most villainous evil scum of Atos were sent to. It was a giant prison, basically, and it took over the span of the entire island. And we had this prison campaign and so those two parts of the world were created because of the backstories were created because of i gave some of my players i said hey you want to try dming go for it do this and so i have them to thank for what the background of those places were made from and then i had one other player who decided he wanted to run a game in my world and we i kind of worked with him and that's kind of the campaign that started me going you know what i'm just gonna create for my world because i found out that for better or for worse i'm kind of a control freak <laughs> when it comes to my world <laughs> yeah. and they started doing things that i was like this is kind of messing up the uh story of my world so we ended that campaign and i was like well that was fun but that was not canonical. So yeah, right. that was the last time I said, here, take my world and do what you will with it. So I, I did that. And that's all that to say good came out of that and bad came out of that. The good came out of it from like the I love the Dread Coast Island, the prison campaign and what that started. I love the 
the backdrop of the world of Elendri- the country of Elendriel, and I haven't played in that time period, but I've kind of built off of that as the time period has gone on, what has happened with that country since then. And then that also the bad came into it of, if you are willing to co-create a world with somebody, you have to realize that they may do some things that you're not cool with, that you don't agree with. And so I know, Chris, that a couple people have brought up to us, they've said from listening to our podcast, you and Mitch should create a world together. (laughs) And I know that would be, uh, honestly, that would be really cool. I think we could come up with some really, really cool stuff. I think we could do a lot because anytime you cooperatively do something, you just like can build off of each other instead of it just coming from one brain. And I have to say, yeah, I personally, I don't want anybody dipping their creative fingers into Atos anymore. I want to create Atos. It's kind of my baby. And I've, I don't know. Are you the same way with Panthea? Do you like, would you want other people like taking your world and messing with it and creating things? Well, I, I, the thing that I did with the Solarian islands is Fluffle Jared was really, really interested Mm -hmm. in coming back and playing. And one thing that I did was, well, Hey, this is what I'm working on. Help me come up with terminology for things. Yeah. So I would, I would come up with the ideas and then we would just expand upon it in the, the document that we were doing. So it wasn't necessarily somebody, doing something within the world and coming up with this grand idea that I was like, well, that doesn't fit. It was more of like, okay, here's the ideas that I'm having. Help me expand on these things a little bit, which I think is different than just somebody being like, oh, there's not a town here. There should be a town here. And it's breaking free from the world of Panthea and now floating around the world. You know, it's things like that that I'm like, I don't know if I'd be comfortable with that because that doesn't necessarily (laughs) fit where it's going. But I have no idea. I have no problem with if that was an idea I came up with and somebody's like, okay, well, here's possibly how it happened. And then we work with it. I wouldn't have an issue with that. But I think for Panthea, I would probably want to stay the primary creator. Mm -hmm. The times that I think I would be okay with it was when it was like, this is our idea going forward. Like we're starting out with this being the main understanding that we're creating something together. Yeah. I think I would be much more willing to say, yeah, that whatever happens, happens. Like we're, we're not doing anything that's necessarily going to interfere with each other, but we're just creating a bunch of different things depending on where we are in the world. Well, and that's the cool thing. And I think that's, that's one of the pieces of advice I think I'd say to people who wanted to do this, that if you have that, I am a little bit of a control freak or that, you know, you care so much and you're not going to be cool with somebody changing some things in your world. Well, then maybe my advice would be to do both, like have your own world and be like, this is my baby that I can do what I will with it and that nobody else will have their fingers in. But then to have another world that you say, okay, well, and this is the world that I'm going to create with so-and-so and together we will make compromises and we will work together to make this world into a really cool the both of us put in ideas to this world because you need to go into it understanding that it isn't just your world then. It is a world that you're making with somebody else, and maybe you're going to add more people to it. I mean, we had Ed Greenwood come on, and he talked about how he's making a world with, like, 80-plus authors, and it's crazy. And how do you, like, you, I mean, that's that's to the point where they are paying people to be, like, the lore keepers and the same. Oh, yeah. You, you <laughs> yeah. can't do that because that doesn't make sense with what author over here has written. You know, a lot of our listeners aren't going to be going that far into it, but... You do need to kind of be on the same page with what you're doing and what you're creating. And I think a good thing for that would be to just 
when you work on stuff, like sit down together and plan out what you each are going to work on separately and, and, and keep each other informed so that you don't come to the table and are like, Oh, and then this happened. And the two of you are like, well, it doesn't make sense with what I did. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you can do things like that, but you might want to consider not having it be world altering things like yep. those types of things you should probably talk about little things like somebody getting assassinated or something. That's like a, a lowly nobody. Like that kind of stuff, I don't think necessarily needs to be said to the other person, especially if they're playing in your campaign and it'll give away some of the story. But I, I think another thing too, you could create this entire world and create the skeleton or the skeleton of it. You could flesh out cities and cultures and things like that. And then just say, all right, we have two different multiverses where the things that you're doing are happening there and the things that I'm doing are happening here. But we have a co-created world with some very similar people, but the outcomes of our campaigns might potentially shift and change what happens within that individual multiverse. I mean, there's a ton of stuff that you could do yeah. with this type of thing. Yeah, because it has to be said, like, if you come to the table and your friend is GMing in your co-created world together and he starts his campaign and all of a sudden dragons burst out of the sky and start attacking and there's an entire legion of dragons flying and attacking this town and you're sitting there as the other co-creator and you're like, but I wrote into the history of this world that dragons were destroyed at the beginning of the world. So that makes no sense. Like, and that being said, maybe that's the plot hook that you're like, yeah, you did. And so now like you, you go along with it. Like it's that improv thing of yes. And yes, I did write that they were destroyed at the beginning of the world. And now they are back. And how did that happen? So you can take those things, those inconsistencies and go, well, it doesn't have to be an inconsistency. That can be something that I work into it, but it's also that, you know, the other side of that coin is knowing what the other people have written and and understanding what the world is together and and being on that same page. But I think in general, it's a great idea. Yeah, I think overall, you just have to both go into it with the spirit of knowing that we kind of just have to roll with the punches at times because yeah. otherwise we're going to get really, really frustrated with each other. And that's never a good thing for two friends to be really frustrated, especially I mean, we think it's something big, but over something kind of petty you know what i'm trying (laughs) to say like it's not something that should end a relationship because you did something within a a non-real world well yeah and that's the thing if 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 you are in danger of losing a friend because you're creating a world together and you're getting angry at each other for things that you're creating together i would say you probably shouldn't be doing this (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so i think your attitude going into it between both people is is really really important above everything else we've probably talked about one thing i like about this idea is chris like to let's let's use ourselves as as an example like if you and me were to create a world together uh and you're dming that week and you introduce something and i'm like wow that's really cool then immediately after that campaign night that not the campaign night after that that night is done and we've played like you and me i'm gonna want to talk to you and be like hey that was sweet let's 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 flesh this out this is really cool and you as the person who's dming although you may have introduced it in game like if 
if this is a willing, we're building this world together, you're going to come to me and you're going to be like, Hey, did you like what I introduced tonight? Like, let's build on this. Let's, I want to hear what your thoughts on that. And together you can work on a world together. And I think the hard part in that is if you're a player in somebody else's campaign and when you're building it together, like you're going to know the secrets of the world as they come and you have to like not metagame as the player. But I think that that idea of together like playing through stories and working as each of your campaigns are being built that's a really cool idea yeah that is really cool so thank you very much cooper for your email we hope that helps out and we hope it helps out anybody else who had a potential question in that area so hopefully you have enjoyed this conversation with sean i know that i learned a lot about dming for con games it's something chris that we haven't done a lot but hopefully we get to do more in the future we've had a little bit of a taste of it and it's been a lot of fun yeah and hopefully if you are listening and you've never done it this episode will give you a passion to try and do it and maybe take a little bit of that edge off because I know that it, it can be stressful having not done something like that before jumping into it. But if you give it a try, I guarantee that it'll be good. Maybe I shouldn't guarantee. There could be some bad uh, things, but I guarantee if you give it a try enough, it'll happen and it'll be great for you. <laughs> uh, so, Chris, if they would like to get in touch with us, email us and ask us about the con game we ran, or if they would like to ask us about anything else D&D related, where can they reach us at? You can email us at dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com. Send us any stories that you've had from previous conventions or hopes that you have for upcoming conventions. We would love to help you think through things and talk through things you know, about what, what's happened or what will happen. You can also leave us a five-star review on iTunes because, you know, the more five-star reviews we have, the more people get read on the air and the more people know that we're legit and that we're good. So head on over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. And you can also find us on Stitcher and Podcast Addict and various other Android uh, podcast applications as well. You can follow us on Twitter at DMS underscore block. That's at DMS block. You can also like our Facebook page. Both those places have updates about the show, memes, and D&D goodness all around. We have a Patreon member shout out for this week. And this week's Patreon member shout out goes to... Ryan Randall. Thank you very much, Ryan. Thank you for your support. Yes. Ryan is a dreaded gold dragon. So <laughs> when you see gold streaking across the sky, take cover because Ryan's coming for you. We love you, Ryan Randalls. We appreciate all that you're doing for us and supporting us. Anyway, that's all we have for you today on the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, Killing characters. And lowering the egos of all other people at the table. Have a good night, everyone. Keep on dungeon mastering. Goodbye.
Ryan. Mike. Oh, nope. <laughs> Doing Michael. <laughs> <laughs> One, two, three. Ryan. Michael. No, we're doing what? Michael. Michael Spreadman. No, you we? said no. Ryan is Ryan is next. Ryan is next. Oh, Michael I thought you said you. Ryan. Oh, okay, I thought you said you did Ryan already. <laughs> Twice. I thought Twice. you said you I, did like, Ryan already. We, That's where I was. No, confused. no, no. We didn't do Ryan. I loved. I loved how you were like, okay. oh, Michael, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, and then we just kept going. All right, one, two, three. Michael. I'm just. Kidding. I don't. I don't know. I don't know who it is now. Ryan. Who? <laughs> it's Ryan. It's Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> we love you, Ryan Reynolds. Brian Reynolds. <laughs> we love <laughs> You caused us a lot of problems in this Patreon shout out, but hey, nonetheless, we love you.